Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. What makes a police officer dedicate his career to road trauma investigation? Trevor Collins knows. He's worked in Victoria Police's Major Collision Investigation Unit for more than 25 years. The former detective leading senior constable is a brilliant collision investigator and qualified by the courts as an expert in the field. Trevor was passionate and dedicated about ensuring justice was not only seen to be done, but achieved for the victim of any road trauma, their families and friends. He's been described as fearless in finding the truth, absolutely committed and ferociously loyal in his work. Hi Trevor and a big warm welcome back to The Crime Couch. Thanks very much Rochelle, Uh, let's bat on. Following on from our last interview, you worked at a number of stations before getting transferred to the then Accident Investigation Section, AIS, in 1996. Looking back at it now, did you choose this form of investigation, Trevor, or did it choose you? I probably chose it initially as probably a stepping stone. It was good, invest- well, it was investigative work of, of some form. And I looked at it as a stepping stone to, like most other young coppers, wanted to go to the homicide squad. And that's where I thought the path may, you know, if I was good enough, lead me. It didn't eventuate because I, I don't know, I just formed a, an attachment to the work. Uh, there was a number of reasons why that occurred, trying to help people who'd been victimised by this type of crime. When you went through the court process, you know, there was always reporters outside the court after the completion of a of a court case and they'd, they'd interview you or ask you questions and you know, you, you're trying to get across the dangers of driving motor vehicles and the consequences uh, for persons as an offender. You know, they end up in jail and you know, it ruins their lives as much as, uh, as the family that's been victimised. You know, like a lot of these cases are just your average Joe Blow who mucks up. You know, not every case, but a lot. And the old saying there, but for the grace of God goes I. You know, so they've, they've destroyed their lives. You know, you, you don't come back from, from these and, and just carry on where you left off. It, uh, it has a lasting effect. What makes a good accident investigator, Trevor? Well, I think someone who's dogged. There's a search for the truth, yes, but it just doesn't fall in your lap. You've got to go and find it. A lot of it is the physical evidence that you collect at the scene. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you certainly won't find it. You know, I've, I've had cases solved, uh, particularly a hit run uh, that I recall down in Dandenong, where a piece of paint that we found in amongst the road surface, you know, the roughness of the road surface. And there's this little two millimetre by two millimetre piece of paint that we're able to match back to a car once we eventually tracked the car down. But that proved that that car was involved in that incident. Absolute proof, just like fingerprints. So if you don't know what you're looking for and prepared to go out and find it or you know, get down on your hands and knees, you won't, you won't find it. You've, you've really got to put your heart and soul into it. I remember going to a, a collision in Mitcham Road in Mitcham. A motorbike slid across the road in front of a car and the rider was killed and we were just happened to be close by so we, we attended to help out the, the local highway patrol members. And I got down on the road and I could smell oil and a colleague of mine, Greg Dean, great bloke, 
he was looking at the motorbike that was involved and he said, yeah, there's, there's oil all over the, the back wheel of the motorbike. And we looked a bit closer and the, the sump plug of the motorbike was missing. It had fallen out. And we went through the pockets of the deceased rider and there's the receipt from him having his motorcycle serviced that day. He'd only just picked it up. So somebody had failed to tighten the sump plug. A simple thing like that and it caused a death. But if you didn't look properly, you didn't find it. What drove you in this role, Trevor? I think after that first incident with the uh, the SES volunteer who was deceased at a scene and dealing with her family for a minimum of three years until the court case was finalised, dealing with the family and helping them get through the situation that they found themselves in, I think I became very adept at that. Of course, you couldn't always treat the victim's families the same. There were victim's families that, because of their background they didn't want to have anything to do with you anyway but I dealt with people of most religious faiths Jewish Muslim and you had to really work hard to make sure that you satisfied their cultural needs and in a very empathetic way and uh, maybe I just had a knack for it but I mean you know the biggest driving force was to you know find some way to reduce these incidents uh, stop it from occurring it's very hard when you really are just reacting to it. But later on, I found a way to be proactive. You investigated one fatal collision for the coroner when you were at Reservoir. What was the difference in the briefs in the investigation for the AIS? The briefs of evidence that you were expected to put together had to be extremely detailed. You know, they had to cover every aspect uh, that you possibly could find about the nature of the collision, how it occurred, you know, photographs, measurements. You know, you had to go right through everything and it was expected of you. If you turned in any shoddy work, you certainly heard about it. I can't say that ever happened to me, but I mean, the big value was you had some really, you know, when I started there at the AIS, some really experienced members and they were great at guiding you on what you had to do. There's certain aspects of these types of collisions that it's just textbook. You follow the lines and you, you find your way to the end. You know, unusual circumstances uh, required thoughts outside the box. Trevor, you've already spoken a little bit in your last interview about that first fatality that you had to deal with at the AIS involving a cyclist who was hit from behind by an alcohol-affected driver. Was this the first time you'd ever dealt with a victim's family to that extent? Yes, most certainly. Fatal outside the La Rundle in Plenty Road. That lady was... a. Uh, a refugee and had no family in Australia so I didn't have to go down that path for that issue but uh, in this one it was full on. How do you deal with that as an investigator because you've got to ask the tough questions as well as being extremely empathetic for the fact that they've lost a member of their family? Yeah and there was you know even in the AOS course there was no uh, formal training in how to deal with victims families. You could seek advice you know there was a, a victim's uh, liaison area at Victoria Police at the time and a couple of gents working there who you sought advice from but you know they were busy mostly with homicide squad matters and and very really assisted us personally uh, with what we did but you could seek advice on how to deal with it and I availed myself of their advice. You know mainly it was what would I be looking for if I was in that position. You're looking for answers you know they're always craving information and you were the only one that had the information so you you had to provide it. You know there were things that you, you had to be careful of because of subjudice rules at court, but I personally tried to provide every aspect of the information that I had, uh, even with the warning of, you know, well, I'll tell you this, but you've got to keep it to yourself. 
And I think the other thing that I was really curious about is what do you tell them? What do you withhold? Because would there be some things I'd imagine that were extremely graphic that you wouldn't want to disclose, but then I suppose it depends on the nature of the family member. Some would want those answers and some wouldn't. Yeah, look, mainly they were after how did it happen. I can't say that I ever really sat and described injuries to people. I certainly had photographs of it, probably withheld those types of photographs from anybody. You know, you, you might show them, you know, a scene photograph that gave an overall picture of what had occurred, but you had to be, you know, really, really careful because, um, you know, we might be used to seeing these sort of things, but, you know, your average person would really backpedal from it. and You didn't want that happening. You wanted to maintain a good rapport with these people. How much does the offender's initial plea determine the court outcome? If they plead guilty straight up, it happens all very quickly. You know, it's the waiting time between your first initial presentation at the magistrate's court. If it's a plea of not guilty, it can be three years before you get to the, the county court because of the, the workloads of the courts and their priorities. Uh, you know, sexual offences took priority and murders, I suppose. But you know, if they pleaded guilty, uh, it went straight from there, pretty much across the road within a week to the county court, to a plea hearing and then a sentencing. My early experience was that most your Joe Blow offenders... Uh, again, you know, yeah, but for the grace of God go us. Most of those would see the writing on the wall and plead guilty straight away, especially with the level of effort and the, uh, that we put into it and the, uh, the briefs of evidence that we put together were you know, um, extremely good. And uh, once the solicitor got hold of them and, and read them, they could see the writing on the wall. And, and an early plea gets them a discount of how many years, just depending on the circumstances. So that's the way it went. But I always relished a, a good fight in the county court as a contested trial. Why did you enjoy contested trials so much? Again, it was a learning experience. Very early on, you learnt the, the way that defence barristers twist things around and the, some questions they asked, and even you sat there and you thought to yourself, oh, shit, I wish I'd looked at that myself. Um, so you learnt to make sure you cover those aspects later on. You worked, Trevor, in the major collision investigation unit for more than two decades. What did you conclude about most offenders involved in a fatal accident? I think I've covered it a couple of times. You know, a, a great many of them were just your average Joe Blow who had too much to drink and um, because that made them incapable of driving a car. They'd crashed into something or someone on the way home and um, caused the death either of another person in their own car or some other innocent person. But then there were the the people that you shudder to think that they go out and drive this way deliberately, they're the ones you, you tended to put a, a great deal of effort into. They've gone out there and done it deliberately. Although you don't like to think of it or put it in these terms, so you, you go, well, let's bury this bugger. What case has stuck with you the most over these years, Trevor? Jeez, it's been so many. Certainly one down at Katani where a, an Indian truck driver went through a stop sign and placed his truck in front of a car. Um, these are rural roads, travelling towards him at 100 kilometres an hour and basically went under his truck and f- caused the truck to flip, tore the engine out of the, the car. It was only a small car. But they both travelled in the, the initial direction of the truck down the road a bit and uh, caught fire. The truck driver was able to get himself out and the young boy, five or six, was able to get himself out of the car. But his mother, father and two siblings burnt to, in the car. There was evidence to suggest, certainly for the mother and father, that they were deceased uh, before the fire engulfed the car. But it was a little bit harder to tell with the two other children in the back seat. Now, anything involving kids is just really, really difficult. Really difficult to, to, to put up with. 
you just took the next question, which was that what accident scenes are the most horrific and why? Look, I, th- I think uh, as a bit of an opener to that one, you could go to a collision scene involving adults as a coping mechanism, both at the scene and afterwards. A bit of black humour came into it, just as a purely as a coping mechanism. And, and you made sure that you know what you said and what you did wasn't seen by the public because it'd be offensive, I suppose. Um, but it was just a coping me- mechanism for our people. But if it, invo- if it involved children in any way... Um, you couldn't do that. It just it, it just seemed wrong, absolutely wrong. And uh, you know, I can think of two incidents that occurred about a year apart down the Laverton and Altona Meadows way, where young children came out of driveways on bikes and under underneath trucks. One was a garbage truck, the other one was a tip truck, and horrific, absolutely horrific to see, and absolutely horrific to deal with uh, for a number of reasons. The age of the victim, they're right outside the family home. So you had to deal with a family that was extremely traumatised. Yeah, they just, they're the worst, absolute worst. How do you think you personally, Trevor, dealt with that amount of chaos and tragedy and horror? Because that's your everyday scene, isn't it? When you'd go to a, when you'd go to work as an operational member, you know, you'd have lighter moments. There would be incidents with people that were unusual, etc., and you could get a, a bit of a laugh. But how did you personally deal with this much death virtually almost every day? Look, it's difficult, and I suppose everybody copes with it differently. You know, I've got a number of colleagues that have gone off work with uh, extremely severe PTSD. I think I'd be silly to even suggest that I don't have PTSD myself to some degree, but it'd be fairly low because it doesn't affect my day-to-day life, I don't think, apart from the fact that I don't sleep very well. I think my personal circumstances and where I live on a small farm outside Melbourne, um, as I approached home, um, a vista opened up in front of me and I think I'm in God's own country. And when I got home, there was work to do around the farm that took my mind off police work. So you weren't sitting dwelling on things that you'd seen during the day or things you'd seen in the past uh, and some of those have been pretty horrific so yeah living here in these circumstances probably you know, I've, I've described it at times it saved my life now when you sit back and think of your career what's the investigation that you're the most proud of and why i think the one where i mentioned the small paint flake and look i didn't do this on my own we worked as a team one of my good mates, Mark Amos, was one of the first people at that scene and they secured the scene from the Glen Waverley office because we had two offices and he did good work at the scene. The finding of that paint flake could probably put mainly down to, to Mark's work but there was a lot of follow-up in that because firstly the vehicle didn't remain at the scene. We had good physical evidence that hopefully if we found the vehicle we could match back to the car. Like I said, it'd be just like fingerprints. We were faced with checking, I think, 26,000 Red Holden VS Commodores as part of the investigation. We went about that work and and we kept it in the media. Hit-run collisions, the media is the biggest thing. Keep it out there, keep it in there. We actually had a phone call from someone who knew about what had occurred because the offending driver had told him of his involvement and he rang it in as a Crime Stoppers thing. And it led us to the person involved. Uh, arrested him and took took him to the Dandenong police station but we didn't immediately find the car because it had been hidden from us. As it developed we got our hands on the car and were able to match it to the debris that we found at the scene and conclusively proved who I think the lady that was hit on the pedestrian crossing 84 from memory and it you know it shattered her family. She was going to the local church as she did on every Friday night. So being able to resolve 
who had done it and how it occurred gave a bit of closure to that family and that was that's a big thing with most of these situations being able to give the family closure um, tell them how it happened who did it so I think that was satisfying but you know I've been involved in quite a few hit run investigations and and one in particular I laugh now it occurred at Footscray on Ballarat Road late one Friday night the victim wasn't deceased at the time he was um, horrifically injured and taken to Royal Melbourne Hospital and we went about our investigations at the scene no car no driver anything like that not a lot to go on I can't remember I don't think there was a lot of debris we found something that night that gave us an avenue of inquiry that eventually led to the identity of the driver but not where he was with the assistance of colleagues from throughout the office or the two offices we went into the Vietnamese community in the western suburbs and just made nuisances of ourselves until they gave this bloke up, um, which happened in the end. It took about a week and a half, I think. And there's a photo somewhere of me bringing this bloke out of Footscray Police Station and off to the city watch house to be lodged. But he was Vietnamese and he was an illegal immigrant. And the reason he didn't stop, he'd had a couple of drinks, but I don't think it was drink was the issue, but he didn't have a licence. He'd never held a licence for the nine years that he'd been in Australia. Uh, and that was his reason for not stopping. But that solved part of the puzzle. But then the interesting part for me was the victim was on bail for rape. And he was an Iranian national, I think, at the time. Anyway, his, his brother um, lived in the western suburbs down Laverton Way or Tarnit, somewhere like that. And his brother was the one that was called into the hospital to make the decision on whether to remove so- life support. And according to the doctors, he didn't bat an eyelid and said, yeah, switch him off. And I later, well, it became apparent that the victim of the rape was the brother's wife, <laughs> which an extremely unusual circumstance. But yeah, he just said, yeah, switch him off. <laughs> Extraordinary case. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Trevor, about the Eastern Freeway tragedy, where, of course, four police members tragically lost their life? The boss of the truck driver, Mahinda Singh, who killed those members, may face new court action. DPP may be able to lay charges against him for alleged safety breaches. What, what are your thoughts about that incident? Look, I've been involved in a number of investigations over the year involving heavy vehicles. And I remember one in particular up on the Hume Highway where this bloke had worked 36 hours or more non-stop uh, without sleep, you know, going Melbourne, Sydney, doing pickups and drop-offs in between. And, you know, we had video of him nearly falling asleep uh, when he made some of those pickup and drop-offs and immediately prior to running up the backside of a car near Broadford, a photo of, through a speed camera of his truck halfway in the emergency stopping line, some 100 metres before he hit the back of a car that was in the emergency stopping line. Anyway, but it transpired with the investigation of that that this bloke was just following the orders from his bosses to, you know, go and do these things. And it's apparent that the driver of the truck involved in the Eastern Freeway and I haven't got any inside information because I don't, I'm loath to ring up and ask about investigations that I'm not involved in, uh, certainly now that I'm retired. But you know from what's been in the media uh, it's apparent that the bosses of that truck driver were quite happy for him to go out and do what he was doing knowing that you know he was either affected by drugs or that he'd had lack of sleep or whatever the circumstances might be but if they allowed him to do that they're just as They're just as culpable as he is, in my view. Agree completely. What was it like in 2017 to all of a sudden get an official envelope on your desk and it notified you you were going to receive an APM, Trevor? Well, um, I was halfway across the Nullarbor with my wife 
with the caravan in tow. It's pretty rare that you have phone reception over there and uh, the phone rings and it's Mark Amos from the office and he said, there's, there's a fairly official looking envelope on your desk. He says, you're not going to be back for a while. He says, you want me to open it? And, and I said, yeah, go. And it was notification that I'd been nominated for an APM and there was paperwork that you had to fill out with that nomination or notification of nomination to accept the nomination. So I got Mark to fax that to my son in Kalgoorlie. We filled it out there and sent it back in, and that's the last I expected to hear about it. And I didn't really hear anything for quite some time. And I was with my daughter picking up some farm equipment in Shepparton, and the phone rings, and uh, this lady says, are you prepared to take a phone call from assistant, or from Chief Commissioner Ashton? Sure, if he wants to talk to me, I'll talk to him. And he got on the phone. He was quite cordial and advised me that I'd been awarded the APM. How did that make you feel? My very words to him were, why me? What makes me any different to any other copper that's just doing his job? And he said, well, you know, you were nominated. He said, I've read the the nomination and and all the paperwork that goes with it. And he says, you're more than qualified or worthy of receiving this award. My father received an APM and I know it meant an enormous amount to him. It also meant an enormous amount to us as the family. Did it mean a lot to your family as well? Yeah, it did. I don't think I ever really talked about what I did, you know, in great detail um, with the, the kids in particular. My wife, yes, I, she knows where I, she knew most times when the phone rang in the middle of the night where I was going and what I was going to be doing. Yeah, so it, it sort of brought home to the kids that um, you know, Dad's pretty good at what he does. And that, you know, you get pretty chuffed about that. And particularly when you go to the awards ceremony at Government House, I took my mum and dad along uh, shortly. That was just shortly before my dad passed away. Dad was real chuffed that one of his sons was being awarded something important at Government House, uh, and he was he was there to see it. And uh, I'm so thankful that he was. Yeah. It's uh, such an honour and absolutely deserved, Trevor. So how's retirement now, and and how does an MCIU investigator stop? It's hard. For a while there, you know, you'd see all the reports of fatal collisions in the papers and on the news, and, you know, you'd wonder about how the investigations were going and who was doing it, and you felt like ringing up, but, you know, loath to stick your nose in where it's not wanted. You know, a couple of times, members had rung me because of the circumstances of a particular collision that they're investigating, and I'd done something similar in the past. So they'd seek advice from me, which, again, gets your head to, to swell up a little bit. And, you know, they, they wanted to know where the proof of evidence was. And I said, well, you know, it's in storage there somewhere. If you want to get it out, you know, you'll see what I've done. And usually the investigation file would be with it so they they could see the steps that you'd taken to achieve the outcome that you did. So what's next for you, Trevor? What's the future? We'd like to travel more with our little caravan here. We were interrupted two years ago because of an injury to my mother and we had to come home from Darwin. Um, But we'd like to retrace our steps back to Darwin and then continue across into Queensland and and travel a bit more. My health is a bit of an issue, but we'll bat on. Well, it's been an absolute uh, delight to sit with you today on The Crime Couch. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch.